So if you've been around church uh, a little bit, you might have heard one of Jesus' parables. And y'all know what a parable is? Uh, a parable is a story that is told to communicate a spiritual truth. Now, parables are able to kind of give some details that aren't always in line with reality. And my therapist told me a parable a number of months ago that has stopped me dead in my tracks, and it's been something that I haven't been able to stop thinking about. She told a parable about a young man who grew up in New York City in the 1980s. And this is pre-gentrified New York City. And uh, he lived in the South Bronx, and in order for him to feel safe, and in order for him to navigate his surroundings, he got these two giant Doberman pinchers. And every single place he went to, if he was going to school, if he was going to the bodega, he was always walking with these two giant Doberman pinchers, and they kept him safe. Now, as he got older, he still walked around with these two giant Doberman pinchers, and they were trained never to let anybody get close to him. One day, he was in his 60s, and he got upstairs to his apartment, he finished his bacon, egg, and cheese on an everything bagel, and he noticed something wasn't right. He was starting to have chest pains. He called 911, and they said, sir, the paramedics are on the way. He went to the door to open the door to make it easier for the paramedics to get in. About 10 minutes later, as he was struggling uh, to breathe, the paramedics were coming down the hallway, and he heard help was on his way. They opened the door, and immediately, to their surprise, they see these two giant Doberman pinchers. They had been trained their entire lives to never let anybody near him. And as a result, the paramedics were not able to get close to him, and he died. It's just a parable. It's not a, it's not a real person, so... <laughs> Here's the thing that stuck with me from that parable. The thing that kept him alive and safe as a child would later become the cause of his death. He got those two giant Doberman pinchers to protect him from the hood, but eventually, since he did not learn new, new ways to navigate his terrain, those things which earlier were good for him and helpful for him and necessary for him later became the cause of his death. My therapist told me that story because she said, Jordan, you know what? We develop mechanisms to protect ourselves and to survive. And once upon a time, those things were useful to us. But unless we adapt and grow and assess our current reality with where we are, we are in danger of bringing old things into our future. And those old things, which once upon a time may have served us, will eventually lead towards our undoing. Now, this is really important because today we're talking about as we continue our Embodied series, we're talking about our emotions. And the way that you and I have all grown up, I don't know all your stories, but I do know that for all of us, we have suffered wounds at the hands of other people. And to navigate those wounds, we had to, at some point, put on a tourniquet to stop the bleeding. And we chose something, some defense mechanism, to make sure that we would be able to navigate it. For some of you, you just have a wound from your pops, he just wasn't around. You wanted a relationship with him, but he never seemed to be able to give that to you. And that was a wound. And maybe when you were 12 or 13 years old, you put the tourniquet around your arm and said, I'm just not going to feel anything. And at the time, the tourniquet saved you because it stopped the bleeding. But eventually, unless you get rid of the tourniquet and go to the hospital and actually get the wound addressed, what's going to happen is you're going to lose feeling in your arm. 
for many of us, we have developed mechanisms on how we handle the wounds in our life, and some of those wounds, um, some of those mechanisms are extremely unhealthy. Now, emotions are a really big deal because they are a part of who you are. In Western society, we tend to separate our lives into distinct categories. So all of these aspects of being a human being, we have a physical part of ourselves, we have an emotional part, a social part, an intellectual part of ourselves, and a spiritual self. And in American society, we tend to segment these as if these things can be separated. We separate the social from the spiritual, for example. Now, over the past eight years of being a pastor, I have met countless people, and without fail, I have never met anybody who has grown to be spiritually mature, who is not deeply connected to so, in a deep social setting that nurtures their faith. Even though some, you know, people come to church on Sundays to get a spiritual high and a spiritual fix, but I have never met anybody whose faith I would want to emulate, who I don't care how much they memorize, I don't care how many times they pray a day, if they are not meeting, meaningfully embedded in a social setting that nurtures their faith, they're never going to make it. And so we're talking about emotions today because they are something that you feel and I feel in my body. I've heard one definition to say that emotions are just energy in our bodies. All of us have felt the energy of the emotions in our body. Fear, for example, is not something that you can, it's not a cognitive thing, it's something that you feel for real, like in every fiber of your body. Uh, I'm a big advocate. I think that every child at some point, in order to progress to adulthood, some cultures have like bar mitzvahs. I think every kid should get chased by a dog. And that will <laughs> teach you lessons about life that nothing else will. I remember when I was like 12 or 13, I was with some of my friends and we were playing basketball and I heard this noise, this like clanging in the distance. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And then that noise kept on getting closer and closer, and we realized it was the collar of this big dog that was chasing us. And the thing about getting chased by a dog, especially if you're in a group of people, you don't have to outrun the dog. All you need to do is outrun the people that are with you. So you should choose slow friends. And um, I outran my friends, and I don't know what happened to them. But I remember when I stopped and the coast was clear, and I heard the screams behind me. Like the, the way that my heart was beating out of my chest. And it wasn't just because I ran 50 yards. It was because fear had truly gripped my body. So it wasn't just that I have a physical part of myself and I have an emotional part of myself. Everything is intertwined. And here's our goal at Renaissance, that your entire life, your physical life, your spiritual life, your emotional life, your social life, your intellectual life, you would learn how to integrate that, that you would be a whole human being and that you will learn how to integrate all the pieces of yourself and then submit the entirety of your life to Jesus. Not just a little slice on Sunday morning from 11.30 to uh, 12.45. So the things I've noticed over these past number of years is that some of the things that affect people the most are not their beliefs. Although your beliefs are monumentally important. Some of the things that affect you the most right now in your relationships it's not the economy, it's not someone else, it's your emotions. It's the things that are going on inside of you, the, the energy inside of your body, and I, I really want us as a church to learn how to steward that in such a way that we would be faithfully following Jesus. Now, here's the reason that's so important, because for so many people, whether or not you pay attention to it, your emotions are driving you. 
I heard a quote that said, pay attention to your fears because your fears are what's, what's driving you. You want to know why somebody works 200 hours a week and is always missing everything with their family? It's because they're afraid of being insignificant or not having enough. And those fears have real um, results in, in their life, and they change everything about them. So we really need to get a good handle of what that looks like in our lives. So today, we're going to look at a scripture where we see Jesus and what Jesus does with the real, raw emotions in his life. Jesus was perfectly human and perfectly God simultaneously. And what he offers for us is a vision of what perfection looks like when it comes to our emotions. So Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, it says this, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I go over there to pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, yo, so you couldn't stay awake with me for an hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, Jesus went and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Now, this story couldn't be more perfect in the way that it describes Jesus and how he encounters the difficulties of life. Jesus is literally being, being pressed by the crushing weight of the sins of humanity, which are about to lay on his shoulders, an impending crucifixion that awaited him. Jesus would have seen crucifixions in his day. He would have known exactly what those entailed. And we see his honest approach of faith and trust and dealing with those difficult emotions. Now, the word Gethsemane is derived from two Hebrew words, which is comes together means a place of pressing oil. So in old times, olive presses have been around since the Greeks first began pressing olives about 5,000 years ago, and they work by applying pressure to olive paste to separate the liquid oil from the water in the solid material. And the image of Jesus going to Gethsemane, this place of pressing, is that Jesus was going to a place that it was going to squeeze the life out of him. So Jesus quite literally has sweat like drops of blood falling from his brow to the ground. That's the image that we see in scripture. He is being squeezed by, again, the weight of the sins of the world and his impending crucifixion. And it flowed, the blood flowed from him like olive oil flows in a press. Now Jesus shows us what it means to faithfully encounter life's pressings. Now, thankfully, none of us will ever have to die for humanity's sins. Jesus has already done that. Jesus paid it all. However, in our life, we will all encounter life's pressings. For some of you, it's financial. Years ago, they were saying, if you get a job in tech, you'll never be broke a day in your life. 
you'll be able to write your own check. But a couple of weeks ago, we saw the massive layoffs happening in so many different financial and, and, and tech companies all over the country. And people that once upon a time were feeling pretty good about their financial outlook are now struggling and wondering what's next. And what happens like when you feel those just financial pressures? Like, what do you do with that? Like, when you have real anxiety about your financial future, paying the bills in your life, that is oppressing. Some of us have, um, we are being pressed right now, or you will be pressed relationally. There might have been a situation that you were in and you were thinking it was going in the right direction. You started toying with the idea of a Thanksgiving invitation to the fam, and then they ghosted you. Or you might be married right now and you found a text message or a website or whatever it is, and you, or your relationship is just gradually disintegrating. And it feels like a painful and slow pressing on you. For others of you, it's physical. Maybe it might be you or it might be a family member. You called to catch up with them or they called to catch up with you and then they said, yeah, I'm going to the doctor because they, they found something. And then what used to be a carefree life that you had now is filled with sadness and worry about someone's health or maybe even your health. And for the parents in the room, whatever finances, health, family doesn't beat out of you, your kids will beat it out of you. <laughs> so here we see Jesus wrestling with his raw emotions. And one of the most Christ-like Christian things you can do is to not have a nice, neat bow on how you deal with the difficult emotions in your life. Very quickly, there is no such thing as good emotions or bad emotions. There are some that are easy to feel and some that are more difficult to feel. Happiness, for example, is very easy to feel. For those of you who played the Powerball, you were sitting there happy, thinking about all of the things that you would do, tithe being one of those things, <laughs> if you hit the Powerball. And when you played that ticket, you just had a smile the whole way home, just daydreaming about what you would do if you hit. And nobody, like imagine if you hit, like you would never try to talk yourself out of that happiness. But for so many of us, whenever we encounter difficult emotions, fear, sadness, anxiety, we try to talk ourselves out of them. We try to push, our, we try to push those things down. So in a lot of ways, uh, if we do not embrace our emotions, they will leak out on other people. One of my mentors said it like this. I put this in a Friday email. Your emotions are like kids on vacation. You cannot put them in the driver's seat or in the trunk. If you put them in the driver's seat, you're going to crash. And if you put them in the trunk, you're going to have a CPS case against you. The same thing is true with our emotions. We shouldn't just toss them the keys and let them take us wherever we go, wherever they want to go. But at the same time, we can't ignore them. Now, all of us have our preferred defense mechanism that we like to use in order to put our emotions in the trunk. And tell me which one of these after service is yours. Uh, the first one that we use is we rationalize. We rationalize our emotions. Like, what good is it for me to like, even be paid? Like, all right, yes, that happened, but like, why does it matter to be sad about that? Like, what is it going to change if I'm sad? Like, nothing is going to change if I really feel angry towards the situation. In fact, it might make it worse. So let me just not even be angry and just go to, work on, go to work on Monday and I will stuff it down. And we rationalize that our emotions have no utility because we can't see an immediate use for the thing that we are feeling, the energy that is going through our body. Others of us, we, we use denial. We just pretend like it doesn't exist. Now this one's specifically for my brothers in the room. Um, for a lot of the men in the room, 
if you grew up in America, the only two emotions that you were allowed to feel is happy or angry. Like, sad? Bro, what are you, seven? You're sad about this? Like, what do you want me to do? Like, you're, you're nervous? You're afraid of something? Come on, if you're scared, get a dog. Because of toxic masculinity, we have been taught, we have been discipled to think that the only two appropriate emotions are anger and happiness. And we will deny sadness. We will deny anxiety and fear and push them aside. Now, here's why this is so um, incredibly harmful to us. One, we're just storing all of this terribly negative energy in our lives, and we're misdiagnosing the problem. We're, not, we're unable to get free uh, because of what society has pushed, placed on our shoulders. Some of you in this room, you were not allowed to feel angry growing up. Like your parents, your father was very controlling over you, and you weren't allowed to have any anger. So now, Anger is an emotion that you cannot really easily access. So when you feel something, you just push it down and you deny that you're even feeling it because your whole life you were taught that it was not an appropriate thing for you to feel. Others of us, we suppress our difficult emotions, right? Like, yo, I got 212 things. To go I got so much going on right now. I will get to this next week. And how many of you have ever gotten to it next week? Right? We just continue to suppress it and say, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, and we never really uh, do get to it. Others of us, we blame. We project our negative, our difficult emotions on other people. If it wasn't for you doing that, I would be straight. It ain't me. I heard this one quote that says this, blame allows you to smuggle dysfunction into your future. Blame is a thing that camouflages your dysfunction and allows you to put it in a suitcase and get it through TSA security. You are smuggling dysfunction into your own future when you blame and project it on other people. <laughs> That's his right there, blame. <laughs> Another big one is distraction. These last two are my big ones. Jim, busyness, and this, is, uh, this was, is a case for the New Yorkers. If you just stay busy enough, you'll never have time to actually think about it. So you'll keep adding more and more things to your calendar, more and more things to your to-do list, so you can conveniently ignore the thing that is eating you up inside. So gym, busyness, alcohol, sex, social media, shopping, whatever it is that provides you a hit of dopamine, distraction is a major, major way that we try to seek to, um, uh, as a defense mechanism to our difficult emotions. Last one's a big one, especially for people here in church. You over-spiritualize it. You over-spiritualize emotions, like anger, for example, like anger is a sin. Here's a really crazy saying in scripture. The Bible says to be angry and sin not. So that means that you, uh, the, the, the definition of sin is to miss the mark. So like in archery, there's a person who, um, you know, shoots a bow into the, the target. And sin means not hitting the bullseye. To the right, to the left, you miss the target. The Bible says that you can be angry and still hit the bullseye of God's will. Isn't that wild? But for so many people, they over-spiritualize anger and make it almost as if to be angry at other people, or check this out, to be angry at God, somehow misses the mark. Real quick, God knows everything that you feel. God has never been like, oh, yo, wow, yo, she's tight? Dang, I didn't even know that. <laughs> after, my wife, after my late wife passed away, I remember this one guy, he was a widower as well. And he was like, man, how are you feeling? I was like, yeah, you know, just feeling pretty terrible. And he was like, I, I, got my, I got my list. I was like, your list 
of, and he just starts reading me all these scriptures. And I was like, my brother, I believe in these things, but I'm allowed to feel terrible. Like sadness and faith can coexist, but we over-spiritualize so many different things. Some of you right now are going through a situation and you said, you know what? That's okay because all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. And that's true. That's, That's really true. But what are you going to do in the meantime before you see the good? You need to allow yourself to feel the depths and the weight of those emotions. And if you are around people, here's here's a good one. This one is, if you are around people who are trying to over-spiritualize for you, very kindly say, thank you, praise the Lord, but stay over there. And for you, you need to be the type of person who can actually bear the weight of difficult, other people's difficult emotions. You know, I heard a quote this past couple of weeks that to the extent that you are able to feel your own and process your own difficult emotions, that is the ceiling on how much you are able to help someone else. There is nothing worse than a person who has been ignoring and denying their own difficult emotions and then tries to help you with yours. They have no track record. They have no experience in these things. All they're going to do is use their preferred defense mechanism on you. So we have all of these defense mechanisms, and none of them are helpful. Um, And there's a a lot of importance about embracing our emotions. Three truths. Unprocessed emotions don't die. They just get buried alive. Healthy community requires that people know themselves. There's so much dysfunction in churches, in this church, at the root of almost every single dysfunction is an emotionally immature, is an emotionally infant, is an emotional infant uh, speaking as if they are mature. Healthy community, healthy relationships, marriages, Friendships, family requires that people know themselves. Last one is our feelings help us discern God's voice. So for the last eight years, I've been on this journey of trying to marry, uh, integrate my entire life, my physical life, my spiritual life, my emotional life, my intellectual life, and my social life, so that I could submit everything all under the, uh, under the lordship of, of Jesus. And I remember the first time that I really started to pay attention to what was going on inside of me. Again, not to let it drive me anywhere I wanted to go, but rather to pay attention to it. It just like amplified my entire spiritual walk. So in 2004, for the OGs in the room, y'all remember when HD TVs were like first coming out? And they weren't nothing you could hang on a wall like this little pretty joint right here. They were the HD TVs on wheels. And I was in law school in North Carolina, and I walked past a Sears. I think those went out of business, right? Sears went out of business. I walked past this. They probably went out of business for deals like this. Um, 12 months, no interest on HDTVs. I ran to the counter, gave them my social security number to see if I can get approved, and lo and behold, I got it. I'll never forget the feeling the first time I plugged in that HDTV to the wall and, like, watched the news. Me and my brother and my cousins, we were, like, bugging, like, yo. I wasn't even able to pay attention to the news. I was like, yo, this lady's skin looks crazy. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Because it brought things to light. Now, previously, I had been watching the news. I had been watching basketball. I had watched so many things. I was watching television. But watching it for the first time in HD showed me things that I had been missing before. The same thing is true for your spiritual life. You'll be able to discern God's voice and where you are in relation to God and to other people significantly more if you give yourself honestly if you wrestle like Jesus did with the things, the energy inside of you, and you don't seek to separate your spiritual life from your emotional world. So here's what we see Jesus doing in Matthew 26. 
So what does Jesus do? The first thing he does is he felt them. When Jesus encountered the difficult emotions, he gave himself permission to feel them. In verse 37, we see Jesus. It says, taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, listen to this, y'all. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Imagine if you were to witness Jesus full of sorrow and deeply troubled. Isn't Jesus perfect? Isn't he God in the flesh? Absolutely. Scripture is showing us a, a picture of what perfection truly looks like. And perfection looks like allowing yourself to feel those things that are going on inside of you. So in verse 37, we see that Jesus is um, truly sorrowful and, and he's troubled, troubled. You know, God is interested in your emotions. God is interested in the things that deeply upset you. He's interested in your fears. Your walk with God will never progress to a point of spiritual knowledge and attainment, of emotional excitement to where you being unequipped to deal with the difficult things in your life um, will be helpful. So one thing that we do at Renaissance, I've talked about it in our emotions series, in our relationship series, is one of the ways for you to feel your emotions is to do this one exercise called emptying the emotional jug. It is an exercise that most people hear and they say, this sounds good. Some of y'all take notes, but then you don't do it. So if you consider me your pastor, I want you to try this at least once this week. It's four words, mad, sad, anxious, and glad. And you set a timer on your phone, and for 15 to 20 minutes, you are going to write down those four words, mad, sad, anxious, and glad. And one at a time, you go through everything that might be making you mad. Whatever it is. Now, here's the thing. Don't let logical you in the room at the same time of this exercise. Logical you would say, you know, you, you would say, I'm mad that my neighbor keeps on playing burn a boy at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> logical you would say, you know what? She's had like a really rough week, and she's a nurse, and she's a first responder, and she's done so much for the community. So it's not that serious. Yes, it is that serious. It's making you mad. Now, the beauty of this exercise is this. So many people I've talked to, they say, well, I don't want to just like think about the things that make me mad and sad and fearful because I'm never going to be able to get out of this pit that I'm digging. And the opposite is true. Right now you're in a pit and you don't even know that you are. This is the way you dig yourself out. By allowing yourself freedom to feel what's going on inside of you. Don't make anything up, but everything for 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes, set a timer and don't let logical you in the room. Don't let faithful you in the room who's going to be quoting scriptures and praying in tongues over what's going on in your life. 20 minutes later, bring them back in. But for these 15 to 20 minutes, just write down these words, mad, everything I'm mad about. Now, check this out. For a lot of people, men specifically, you can access anger really quickly, but what you're really mad about is actually probably a fear that you have. In 2020, when George Floyd was murdered, I remember being mad for months. And I was talking to a friend that's a psychotherapist, and I was asking her, like, what do you do with like, just anger and rage? And she said, well, how long have you been angry? And I was like, you know, since May. And it was like December. She was like, that is way too long to have anger. She said, if it's, you're feeling it that long, it's probably something un underneath that. And she said, well, what might you be afraid of? I was like, I'm not afraid of nothing. And then she was like, well, think about it. And I gave myself permission to actually feel. And I, as I thought about it, I said, well, I'm actually afraid that something like this could happen to one of my, one of my kids. I'm afraid that I'm afraid that one day I'd get a call that something like this would happen to one of my family members. Yeah, and that terrifies me. Now, that 
was like such a freedom for me to be able to bring that to the surface and allow myself to feel that in such a way that um, really gave myself permission to, to feel that. So to do the exercise, the same thing with sad and anxious and glad, uh, and spend 20 minutes doing that um, this week. Please allow yourself to feel those emotions. Number two, Jesus transparently asked for help from his community. He transparently asked for help from his community. So in verse 38, it says, He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Two things in this scripture in verse 38. Jesus confesses to his friends the depth of his grief and what was going on in his life. So his friends, when they asked, how are you doing, they got the real answer. I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Think about that. He didn't give them like some little, you know, I'm deeply grieved, but the Lord is going to, but the Father is going to use my, my sacrifice to save the world. He didn't say that. He said, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Stay here and remain awake with me. So one of the reasons we push community at Renaissance, we push DNA groups, is that somebody needs to know the real you. Somebody needs to be around you in such a way that when they ask how are you doing or someone that you can go to them and say, this is what's going on in my life and I need you to pray with me. I need you to stay by me. I need you to hold me down because I ain't got it right now. So Jesus transparently asked for help from his community. And it is a strength to invite people, others, into the difficult moments in your life. The third thing we see Jesus do is he prayed through them. He prayed through them. Now, after you have given yourself space to feel your emotions, after you've given yourself space, space to feel them, you should then offer them to God in prayer, right? So those things that you, you, you developed on that sheet, the things that you're mad about, you're sad about, now you can pray through them. Here's what we see Jesus in verse 39 saying, going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So three times Jesus over and over again is praying. Jesus, God the Son, is praying to God the Father um, this beautiful prayer. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus shows us what it means to be human in this regard. Like Jesus wasn't inviting. He wasn't like, oh, yes, I can't wait. The cross? Yo, let's go. Let's get it. He was honest in where he was, and he's praying these things. He's praying through the difficult emotions in his life. One of the healthiest prayers that you will ever pray. So here's the thing. Sometimes when life gets difficult, we stop praying. And I think in some ways it's an invitation to learn how to pray, to learn how to pray the real things that are going on in your life and in your heart. So number three, Jesus prayed through what was going on in his life. And for you, that would look very differently than Jesus's uh, scenario, but say, Lord, I'm just, I am so mad about this thing. I'm so angry. I'm so, I can't believe that, Lord, Lord, I can't believe you allowed this to happen in my life. And that is some of the most faithful, honest praying that you will ever do. The opposite of that, of just pretending like everything is all good, uh, would truly not, not be following in what Jesus shows us here in the scripture. And the last thing we see Jesus do is he laid down his will for the Father's will. Now, after Jesus felt his emotions, do not jump to this, to this one. He gave himself time and space to feel this. He asked his community around him for help. He prayed through them over and over again, and then Jesus lays down his will for the Father's will. Verse 42, it says, again, a second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. 
And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Three times, over and over again, Jesus prays this prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Interestingly, when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he included a line that said, your kingdom come and your will be done. He instructs you and I to pray the same prayer every single day to go to God the Father and say, I have a will. I have a dream for my life. And I'm going to choose to lay down my will and my dream in the hopes that your, dr- your dream for my life and your will is better than mine is. And that is probably one of the most difficult prayers to pray. When I think about the things that make, that grieve me right now to this day, when I think about the things that are just fill me with so much confusion and uh, anxiety about what's going on and what the future may hold, quite literally the last thing I want to pray is your will be done. I like my will better. I think it sounds actually pretty good. Jesus instructs us and shows us what it means to do this, to have the agonizing release of your will to God the Father's will. Now, when I think about this, the things in life that give me so much pause that I don't want to actually turn over to the Father's hands, there's two things that I think about that allow me to be able to pray, your will be done in my life. The first is the cross. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15 and 3. He says this, For I pass on to you as most important what I also received. These are the most important things, y'all. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. What Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus, on the cross, took all of your sins, not because he wanted to do these things, but because it was necessary to bring us back to right right union with God. And sometimes when I'm going through a scenario in life where I'm struggling to to trust Jesus with the direction of my life, I look at him on the cross and I think to myself, if he would go to that for me, then surely he cares about me. I might not know where this is going to lead, but I do know for sure that there's nothing that he would withhold from me. And the one that is calling me to give him my all has already given me his all on the cross. So that's the first thing, that you and I would continue to rehearse and to um, look at the cross, that we would look at the cross, not turn away from it, and to see our Savior there taking uh, the lashes and the whips for us as a sign, as proof that God loves you, that God cares about you, that you are not an afterthought, that you are his priority. So the first thing I do is really try to refine myself and to look back at the cross, even when life makes me want to look away from it. The second thing I do is something that we get to do right now. It's something called worship. And worship is the collective act of coming together, singing songs, and oftentimes the songs that we sing are not even things that we can even say that we believe in that moment but they are declarations of what we want to believe in the future. Now, one of the things that's beautiful about coming together is not just we come together because it's Sunday and this is what people do in America um, once a week, but there is a power, there's a real thing that this is why the apostle said, do not forsake the assembly of the saints. This is really important to come together and to sing a song. 
Uh, there's a story about Wei Shen concentration camp in 1943. And this is going on during one of the world wars. And there was a group of people trapped inside of a Chinese internment camp. And these hundred or so people were Christians. And every single day, they would get up and they would sing songs together, trapped behind prison walls. Other prisoners would look at them and say, what are y'all doing? Look at, you, look at where we are. Why would you be singing songs of praise in a prison camp? And it wasn't that their situation was going to change miraculously by singing the songs, but that their perspective of the situation would change, that their faith would deepen. And these men and women were able to hold on to faith through the hard times and through the good times and to see themselves on the other side. So we're going to sing a song right now called Withholding Nothing. And this song, for some of you, is going to be a song that jibes with where you are, but for others of you, it's going to be a declaration of faith, almost like the prisoners singing at the Weishen concentration camp. So if you would, please join me on your feet. And for those of you who don't know where you stand in your relationship with Jesus yet, I would love for you to consider what it looks like for you to give Jesus a little bit more of yourself. So Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would meet us exactly where we are, Lord. Give us the power and the strength to give you all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.